The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. If you have your Bibles, we're looking at 1 Peter 3. We're just going to do verses 8 to 12 and not 8 to 17, 8 to 12. Let's give attention to God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We pray again for us. Fathers, we sit under this portion of your word. We thank you that this word is living and active. It's not a static word. It will judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. We ask that it would give life and that you would sanctify us in this truth. And may we bear fruit and uh, not forget what we look like. May we be doers of the word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We all want the good life. That's nothing new, is it? I mean, all the way back in Peter's day, and Peter's quoting from Psalm 34, and Even the psalmist is saying, whoever desires to love life and see good days. That's everybody, right? I mean, you you want what's good, right? I mean, that's Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith's whole thesis of the good life. And, you know, a lot of his books, You Are What You Love and Desiring the Kingdom, and it's the good life. Well, do you qualify this morning? Is that what you want? I haven't met too many people who hate life and want to see bad days. But if you desire to love life and see good days, Peter is telling us there's a problem. In this little text right here we just read, the problem is mentioned five times. And it's bad things that have been done to me. It's a problem called evil. And the word is mentioned five times. So he's saying don't repay evil for evil. And he's saying let him turn from evil and do good, and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But evil's a problem. And it's not just the faraway problem on the television screen where you see Putin or one of your political enemies, whether it be Trump or Biden or Pelosi or Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. Like, we have certain, you know, people that we say, oh, that's, you know, I disagree with them. Those are like faraway enemies. That's kind of ethereal enemies. But much closer than that is when it's a coworker, someone who's real close, like in the same office, or your boss, or a superior, or a neighbor right across the street or next door, or a friend, or someone in the church, someone from my support group or small group has done me wrong, a family member, parent, child a spouse. And we're all, I'm sure we've all seen the little uh, 
YouTube funny meme that Charlie bit me and it hurts. <laughs> and I think the reason it went viral is we could all relate to that. You know, that this poor little brother got his finger bit and he, Charlie bit me and it hurts, you know. Well, that's, that's us. We all get bitten at certain points in life and Peter is telling us we have a calling. And his calling has something to do right within the middle of when someone bit me and it hurts. And the calling is back in 220. So if you go back up a couple verses to chapter 2, verse 20, we've been talking about this for a few weeks, that if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example of suffering, so that you might follow in his steps. So when you say, I've decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus and to accept the call to embrace suffering in this life. Because he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviling, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, Peter now, it, it, you know, he's gone through these different authority structures of human institutions and then employers and, and employees and then husbands and wives. And then, then he says, finally, all of you are literally now the end or now the telos. Here's the, here's the summary. And he reminds them again that you've been called. You, you've been called to this. It's verse, verse 9. Don't repay evil for re- evil reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called clause, in order that so that you may obtain a blessing so we're just kind of walk through that what does that mean for us well if we are going to experience and walk in this calling that we've been called to twice here in first peter we're told we're, we're called to this we're to embrace when somebody hurts me, and so often the people that we love the most, the people we hurt the most, so you can apply this right in your marriage or in your home. I mean, it happens all the time where we get hurt. And Paul, or Peter here gives five attitude adjectives. They're all in verse 8. Here they are. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. They're all adjectives in original language. But then he's going to give five imperatives. And that would be uh, in the Psalm 34 quote, 10 to 12. But just, th- I want you to think of those five things in verse 8 and think of a hand. Okay, I've got a hand that's got five fingers. Or you think of spokes and a wheel or, or maybe lug nuts, five lug nuts holding this tire to the car. But verse 8 is a chiasm. And guess what's in the middle? The most important, brotherly love. Philadelphia. That's in the middle. And then what he does is he's saying, mind, heart, love, heart, mind. And he's using words very interestingly. You see where he says unity of mind, okay? And then it ends with humble mind. They're very similar. So one and five are very much the same. And then same with sympathy, okay, and tender heart. Those are both heart things about loving from the gut, from the liver or the kidneys or the, you know, the, the, ins, the innards. That's the idea of this deep uh, love. 
That would be the sympathy. And literally, that word literally means to suffer with. Come alongside with those who are suffering and mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. If one part suffers, the whole suffers. And so we don't just move, move off of that, okay? So this is a chiasm, verse 8. So are we getting this? It begins in the mind. We have to have a unity of mind. And this mind is to be a humble mind. And then we see sympathy and tender heart. But right in the middle of it is brotherly love. And I'll just start by saying there's kind of like, we'll kind of expound these five things, but first of all, let's kind of look at the five things of the flesh that kind of are more natural, that we're, we're retaliators by nature. Like nobody has to teach you to be retaliatory by nature. Interestingly though, the, the Latin word for retaliation literally used to mean payback in kind from the Latin uh, somehow the last two words got dropped off, <laughs> and now it just means payback for retaliation. But the, the problem is, is the devil loves taking lug nuts off of the, the car and sidelining Christians, and so we forget those five things, and somebody hurts us, and we move towards these five things. And this is, this is from Paul Miller, his book on love, which goes into the story of Ruth, he lays out five things. I think this is very, very insightful of kind of the cycle of the flesh. Here's what happens. He says, number one, this is the number one kind of walking you through the steps of the flesh. Number one is self-pity. Somebody hurts you, and the first response is, is to have this internal feeling and compassion and sympathy, but it's on steroids turned towards self. So it's a sympathy and a compassion, but it's an over-compassion, over-sympathy for myself. Charlie bit me, you know, and, and, and it hurts. And so the self-pity is, you never gave me a young goat, okay? Because the elder brother is going to fit all five of these. And so it's this feeling of victim. I am a victim. I have been hurt, and I've been cheated, been mistreated, when will I be loved? That idea, okay? And so the second thing is then, now that self-pity feeds bitterness. And the bitterness is just this simmering demand that God would make my world just. All these years I slaved for you. All these years I served you. And you never even gave me a young goat. And then it leads to cynicism and mocking, to restore balance by mocking the other person. This son of yours, he can't even call him a brother anymore. This son of yours, cynicism, mocking. And then it moves to gossip and slander, creating a com community of empathizers who will see my pain. And so... You know, when the son of yours, who, who devoured your, your livelihood with harlots, he, you know, his gossip and slander. And then the last is emotional revenge, which is to withdraw our hearts to punish the other person. And we know that the elder brother refused to go in, even though he was supposed to be the master of ceremonies at this party, as the elder brother was supposed to be. And he won't even go in because that was part of his inheritance, that got squandered. 
And he's so mad that the father was so gullible to give him some of his own monies that would have been mine. And this son of yours, you killed a fatted calf for him. So payback is kind of this natural fleshly response, okay? And the arsenal of the flesh is we're well supplied. We, we kind of like are a well supplied um, army, and we've got our counterattacks, bitterness, despair, biting anger, self-pity, resentment. And, but we've got new ones. We can post online. We can dart them with a dart. We can take it to the Colosseum, you know, as Jonathan Haid said. You know, instead of talking to them privately, why don't we just meet in the Colosseum and everybody can watch, and we'll have a, we'll have a Twitter war. We'll, have a, we'll just post it online. Let's just go to the, go to the, uh, to the arena. And so we can do that. Or we can talk to the pastor about them. We can ask for prayer for this person and then really just bury them in the prayer request. We can write them off. We, we can ghost them. That's a big one. Uh, we can ignore them. Or back in my day, there was a pretty good disciple maker in the way to deal with conflict resolution. And it was the world's way of conflict resolution. And many of us were discipled in this plan. It was by Paul Simon. And it went like this, slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee. Get yourself free. You think about all those ways of avoiding conflict. Just disappear. I'm gone. Just hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. I'm out of there. This is hard. I don't want anything to do with it. And what Peter is saying is that actually Christians are free from the need of vindication because you have been vindicated in Christ who suffered and bore all your sins in his own body on the tree so that you would die to sins, particularly sins of retaliation, and that you've now been healed. You once were going astray because you used to not be able to deal with conflict at all. And now, this is what Ed Clowney says, suffering has become your opportunity to meet evil with good and cursing with blessing. Let me repeat that. Suffering has become your opportunity to meet evil with good and cursing with blessing. How do we do that? Well, we need one mind to start with. That's not uniformity. It's remembering how Jesus loves his body and his church, and it's the mindset of how we're to treat one another as Jesus prayed that we would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me, the glory that you've given to me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So the one mind starts with this commitment to the purity and the peace of the church, and it starts with this knowing what Jesus wants for his church, but then we know that we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called, which is with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and then we get this whole section again about oneness. There's one body, one spirit. You are called to one hope that belongs to your God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So it's a commitment to the unity of the spirit. That's this idea of the one in five of verse eight of this unity of mind and a humble mind. But then the humble mind is also a mind 
of Christ. And we're to do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but to the interest of others, having the same attitude that's of Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but made himself nothing. He took the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's the idea of the humble mind. Is that same attitude is to be in us, and that's how we're to treat others. And then we're to have this sympathy and a tender heart. And this tender heart is the opposite of a hard heart or a, or a uh, pharisaical heart. But it's loving from the insides, from the guts. And it's the same word that's used in Ephesians 4, 32. We're told to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so God has loved us. And we, in turn, are now to love others. And so we get to this key part that is a big, it's a big word in, in uh, the epistle of brotherly love. We see it a few times in the epistle. This idea of Philadelphia, that, that we're family. We, we're cared for. We love one another. Last night we watched, the, the guys watched this documentary of the rescue of the Thailand boys soccer team that was stuck in a cave. And they got flooded in, and they're in the back of this cave, and they're there for over two weeks. And when they're finally rescued out, the greatest uh, cave divers in the world flew from different places, and they would take them out one at a time. And one of the interviews with one of them said that when he got one of these children, he said he, he took ownership, that he was like my own, like his own child. Th- that's the idea here. We're family. God is our father, and we've been adopted into the family. So if we're adopted in the family, and he's our, he's our father, and Jesus is our elder brother, guess what, guess what these people are? That's my brother. That's my sister. Like, look around. These are brothers and sisters. Treat them as your very own. That's the idea. And so it's family. And so this idea of not retaliating, but bless those who... Um, that you may obtain a blessing. It's amazing that Peter brings this out, and this theme um, is such a big theme um, in the Bible, okay? So this isn't just here, okay? Think about how many times this occurs. So you've got, uh, bless those who persecute you is the finishing off of the Beatitudes. Those who revile you say all kinds of nasty things against you. Great is your reward in heaven, we're told. Um, But we're told in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not, Uh, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And so that's a big theme in Romans 12, not being overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see to it that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. So don't retaliate, don't be vengeful, that's the negative, but the positive is to bless them, to, over, to overcome evil with, with good. And so when your spouse says something that hurts, and you can think of something very cutting or clever in return, don't retaliate. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are reviled, we bless, and when we are persecuted, we endure. You think of Martin Luther King Jr., his whole life and his ministry was nonviolence. And at his funeral service, Benjamin Hayes said, if any man knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. House bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously accused of being a communist, falsely accused of being insincere, stabbed by a member of his own race, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, occasionally deeply hurt when friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind, and he went up and down <clears throat> the length and breadth of this world preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. Martin Luther King, commenting on Matthew 5, 43 to 45, which is to love your enemies. He says, hate multiplies hate. In a descending spiral of violence, it's just as injurious, injurious to the person who hates as to the victim. But above all, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend, for it has creative and redemptive power. You remember when Joseph forgave his brothers in Genesis 45? They had been sitting on a lie for 20 years. And when he finally reveals himself to them, they're pretty, they're afraid. <laughs> and we're told that this is Genesis 45, 15. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. It wasn't until they saw and felt the tears on their body that they knew that Joseph had forgiven them. They were scared to death because of Joseph, because they thought their life was in his hands, and Joseph, in compassion, forgave them. I came across a story some years ago by Nick Ripkin, and it's a heavy book called The Insanity of God, a great mission story, and it's the story of Stoyan, and he grew up in Eastern Europe, and when he was 12, his father, this is back in the, uh, his father was a Protestant pastor, and this was during the oppression. And his father went to prison for 10 years due to communism, oppression, and persecution of Christians. And Stoyan's father, every morning, one of the guards would take some of his own human waste, and he would spread it on a piece of toast, and he would offer it to Stoyan's father every, every day for nine months. And so, some years later, Stoyan's um, father um, was back pastoring, and this lady comes to him, and she has a diabetic son. She's elderly. The son was, had gone blind, and the son was now near death, and he needed medication to manage his agonizing pain, and there was no way to get the medications, but somehow Stoyan was able to, his father was able to get the medication, went to this old woman's apartment. She led him into the bedroom to introduce the pastor to her son, She's grateful for the medicine. He wanted, she wanted him to pray over her son. And so Stoyan's father enters the room and he gets the shock of his life. The blind, invalid, middle-aged man lying helpless in the bed was the prison guard who had spread human waste on his breakfast toast every morning for the first nine months of his imprisonment. And his first response was, Oh Lord, don't let me fail you now. And he prayed beneath his breath. Without identifying himself or saying anything that might give away the connection, the, the pastor granted his former tormentor forgiveness in his own heart. Help the old woman administer the medicine to relieve the man's 
pain and prayed for her son. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who persecute you. And he returned home and he said he had a new and a deeper understanding of God's grace. He was overwhelmed by God's grace. And Stoyan's life, as a result, was changed by his father's grace towards this man. You see, we're called to pray for those who mistreat us. It's impossible to pray for somebody and hate them at the same time. It's pretty hard to do that, isn't it? Christostom was an early church preacher. He said that praying for our enemies is the highest summit of self-control. We have this great example throughout the scriptures, ultimately leading us to Jesus. But you think of the different scenes in scripture where people show grace and instead of being mean-hearted or cold, they were gracious. Abraham rushing to rescue his brother Lot, who had selfishly chosen the best land for himself, and takes 318 men and goes and rescues him. And you think of Joseph forgiving his brothers who'd thrown him into a pit and sold him as a slave for money, and David sparing Saul's life several times. Stephen, as he's being stoned to death, praying for God to forgive the very ones that are stoning him. And God answers the prayer in the conversion of the next chapter is Saul becomes Paul. And then Paul tells us not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. As he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And, and the Roman centurion says, truly, this is the Son of God. There's, there, there's such a power to this that when you don't practice retaliation, when you forgive and you bless those who've cursed you, he's saying so that you would inherit the blessing. Does this mean that this is completely contingent on you are, are going to be saved only if you do this? Is that what this text is teaching? And I would say no. I would say what this text is teaching is it proves that you're children of God. And it verifies that the root is leading to true fruit. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, the, the people who've been forgiving are going to, in return, want to forgive. They're going to wrestle with, but they're going to forgive others. They're going to work that through. You see... And then the question is, well, is this a future blessing? Is this a present blessing? You know, it says, blessed that you may be blessed, and it sounds kind of like a Joel Osteen kind of thing. And I, you know, bless, blessed that you may obtain a blessing. Well, that's what it says. Blessed for this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Well, the blessing we know is, is ultimately a future blessing because, I mean, clearly the... Um, Jesus said, blessed are those who persecute you. And then he says, great is your reward in heaven. So that's clearly a future reward. But if you read through the book of 1 Peter, there's all these present blessings that are tangible now. For husbands, treating your wives properly, and you do so, and your prayers are going to be answered rather than hindered. And wives, when they do these kind of things, it says that you could win your husbands. I mean, these would be present blessings and there's a whole bunch more in the book if you just keep reading and look for some of the present blessings. So I would say that it's both. But the answer is, is that we, what this uh, proves is that God has changed our hearts. And when he changes our hearts, we can't hold on to bitterness 
These other things, the humble mind and all these things start to come out of us. And then that leads to these five imperatives. And I'll just close. I'm not really going to expound them, but there's five imperatives from this Psalm 34 where he says, this is what we're to do. Now that we're changed people, he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and to keep his lips from speaking deceit. That would be one imperative and then the infinitive. So let him keep his tongue from evil and to keep his lips from speaking deceit. So as we're changed now, we're going to start telling the truth, keeping our tongues from being deceitful. Then we're called to turn away from evil, not to return evil for evil, but we're to turn away from evil and we're to do good. And so much of 1 Peter is this continual emphasis of do good, keep doing good. How do you bless those who persecute you? How can you, you know, give them a cup of cold water? How can you bless them and serve them? And then he ends with seeking peace. This is peace with people that you might be at odds with. Seek peace, and then it says pursue peace. Don't just ghost them and write them off or unfriend them or, you know, remove them from your life. He's saying seek peace and pursue it. Isn't that what the Lord did with us? We were his enemies. It's like we had taken the grenade, we had pulled the pin, and we went to throw it at him, and all of a sudden the grenade fell out of our hand, and it fell down, and, and, and before we knew it, we looked down and Jesus is on top of the grenade, and, and he dies for his enemies. That, that's what Jesus did, and we were trying to throw the grenade at him. He loves us, and he's forgiven us. And so as his people, we have this radical calling of being non-retaliatory people. And so when you take one, take one for the team. Take one for the body of Christ. I love the story of when, um, I'm blanking on his name, Dallas Willard. And he, was, he, was, he would practice these disciplines. And he talks about one time where this guy just thrashed him in class. And said some pretty hard things about him. And he didn't say anything. And, he, and a guy came up to him afterwards and said, why did you let him get, get away with that? And Dallas Willard just said, well, I've been practicing just this discipline of not returning evil for evil. So I just decided I wasn't going to say anything. Even though he could have done it, he just took it. Now, I'm not saying there isn't times where you need to make a defense. There will be. But what if you just practiced and said, you know what, I'm just going to do this in love as I follow Jesus because he was silent. He didn't revile. He didn't, he didn't return. He didn't make threats. He was a lamb as a sheep to the shears, as the lamb to the slaughter was our Lord Jesus. And he's called us to follow in his steps in this life. It's amazing. It's not for the faint of heart, is it? We need Jesus to do this very thing. Let's pray together. Father, give us the humble mind, the tender heart, the brotherly love. Help us to live out these imperatives, Lord. We cannot do that in our own. And Lord, we have fallen short in so many ways. Make us tender. Take out our hard-heartedness. Help us to be quick forgivers, quick to let go. Forgive us when we hold on to things and brew on them. I ask that you change us from the inside out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.